0: Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا Allah. لولا أن هدانا الله، وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله. وحده لا شريك له. له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله ارسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وولي الامر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وولي الامر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا اوصيكم اوصيكم ونفسي اولا بتقوى الله وطاعته واحذركم من عصيانه ومخالفه امره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو اصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم يسالونك عن الانفال قل الانفال قل الانفال لله والرسول لا تبين واطيع الله ورسوله إن كنتم مُؤمنين. Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims. This area, roughly translated. Means, they ask you about the spoils of war. Say that the spoils of war belong to Allah and His Prophet. And so be conscious of Allah's power presence and His corrective justice. and keep pliable the bonds of brotherhood amongst yourselves and obey Allah and His Messenger if indeed you are committed This is the first ayah of Surah Al-Anfal And obviously, this surah and the surah that comes after it, Surat at they are surahs that pertain to the business of war. The aftermath of war, the preparation for war, and the rules of engagement in a just war. Now one, now war just happens to be one of the common activities that human beings engage in. And as with all important activities of human beings or human behaviors, war, like any of those other important activities, falls under the scope or within the domain, of moral rectification now the reason that we bring up these ayat related to war and by extension the surahs that are related to war is that today or this week marks the 40th anniversary of the Islamic revolution in Iran the Muslim peoples of Iran were liberated by a principal jihad a jihad that was geared to the liberation of the oppressed from the injustice and the degradation and the slavery of the oppressor and this is the meaning of a principal jihad it's an instrument of liberation it's an instrument of freedom it's an instrument of independence And so this liberation took place 40 years ago. And at that time, the dominant power position in the world was split into two camps, the capitalist camp and the communist camp. And both of these camps their default position in the world of world politics, their default position was one of war. Whether you call it a cold war or you call it a hot war that was being prosecuted in territories other than the home bases of communism and capitalism. And so insofar as Washington and Moscow were concerned at that time, There was a cold war between the two of them, but as far as Vietnam, or Korea, or Afghanistan, or a whole host of other countries were concerned. There was a hot war inside their territories, where their economic infrastructure, their technological infrastructure, their roads, their bridges, their healthcare system, all of that was being destroyed. And so now we fast forward 40 years and still we see that the dominant power position is still on a permanent war footing. And part of the reason that there is this constancy in maintaining a preparation for war is the general feeling of insecurity that is brought about by having to engage in those kinds of human behaviors which invite an aggressive response or a reactive response. And so at this point, this speaker is going to go into some detail about the culture of war in which the Islamic revolution grew up in in which the Islamic revolution was founded now I understand that discussing the culture of war is not a typical topic that is discussed in khutbas However because it is such a pervasive human activity it ought to be brought up at a time when people gather to learn about their deen. And so I'm going to spend some time in trying to help us understand in some amount of detail what this culture of war is all about. And I would like all of you who are listening to bear with me for a bit because this development is important to the point that is going to be made at the end. And so this culture of war has a theoretical basis. And so let us explore the theoretical basis of this pervasive culture of war that exists in the world. There is the theory of symmetric versus asymmetric war. And obviously symmetric warfare is related to power positions that have a parody of resources and weaponry. And just as obviously an asymmetric war is related to a lack of parody between powers that are at war with each other. And it is said through empirical analysis that generally asymmetric warfare lasts a lot longer than symmetric warfare. Of course, evidence we have in Afghanistan. Much of the research related to symmetric warfare focuses on the domain of global war. And the reason that it focuses on the domain of global war is because of the intense and the pervasive destruction of of an economic backbone in society. And also at the conclusion of a symmetric war or a global war, it leads to major changes or transformational changes in the international structure of the world. The most pervasive theory of war, and of course we are focusing on the Western secular culture, the most pervasive and the most prevalent theory of war is from the realist school. And out of this realist school emerges the notion of a balance of power. And the theory suggests that so long as there is A balance or an equality or a parity between the different power positions on earth then this is what con- creates the conditions for peace and if there by contrast if there is an imbalance of power then this is what creates the conditions for global war and in the nuclear age this notion of balance of power has evolved into what is called MAD, or mutually assured destruction. And what this means is that there is a balance of terror where the competing sides or competing rivals for world dominance equally understand that a nuclear fallout is potentially destructive to both sides and so this is what sort of maintains a balance of peace in the world now ironically with regard to the balance of power theory the proliferation of nuclear weapons according to the theory is actually supposed to ensure peace and so the more nations that have nuclear weapons the more it is expected according to this theory that there will be peace in the world but obviously we know in practice that that is not the case and in fact with regard to actual empirical studies of this particular theory it basically does not hold up the results are either negative or contradictory. And so those who come up with the theory know that it doesn't hold up and so they go back to their academic institutions and they produce more theories. Another theory is the power hegemony theory. This theory was developed after World War One principally by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. And he felt that the power club in the world ought to create the League of Nations that was the precursor to the United Nations, that it would be a collective security alliance that would punish with overwhelming force anybody who aggressively violated international norms of coexistence. And obviously, we know that the League of Nations failed because the power clique in the world were not able to agree on a policy of non aggression. What they were making off of their colonial enterprises, the theft of other people's resources. It was too much of a windfall for them to share with each other or to share with the people that they were stealing from. And so the League of Nations collapsed. And as the United Nations Security Council grew out of the League of Nations. And so is it any wonder that the United Nations Security Council is not effective, especially when the power countries in the world have a veto power. So it's another theory. A war that did not stand up to testing out in the field. And so the Western Brains Trust moves on. They develop the power transition theory of war. And in the power transition theory of war, there is a hierarchy. And at the top level of this hierarchy is the dominant hegemonic power, much like the United States today. At the second level, according to this theory, there are the major powers who have the potential to challenge the dominant hegemonic power. And there's only a few of them. And then at the lowest level are the medium and small time powers, who don't have the capacity to overtake the dominant hegemon in the world. And so they have to sort of accept the world order as it is laid out by the dominant power culture. Now as this particular theory goes, so long as there is this power disparity between the dominant hegemon and everybody else, this is what creates the conditions for peace. But if somebody from the second level challenges the dominant hegemon for power, then this is what creates the conditions for a global war. And so you can see that with regard to the power transition theory, it is the opposite of the balance of power theory. In this particular case, the inequality of power creates the conditions for peace and power competition creates the conditions for war. And there are still others who conceive the long-term theory of war. In this particular theory, Its advocates suggest that war is the inevitable result of long-term economic trends. And if these economic trends head in a downward direction, then this is what leads or creates the conditions for conflict that ultimately result in war. In a way, the proponents of this theory are suggesting that social and economic forces are beyond the control of human beings and thus they lead to war. And finally, insofar as this particular presentation is concerned, There is the arms race theory of war that war results by virtue of arms races and so under the this particular theory, nations that are threatened by conflict, nations that are threatened by conflict when a rival is found to be spending a lot of money in manufacturing weaponry such nations who are threatened by conflict in this situation they themselves begin to spend money on constructing weaponry and thus what emerges is an arms race and if this arms race and you can think back to the cold war and if this arms race is not somehow managed by negotiation or by political engagement. It threatens to widen the gap between rivals. And it is this widening gap that prompts the weaker power to engage in a war out of fear that the gap will become too big to overcome. But again, When this theory has been subjected to empirical analysis, the recovery of data out in the field, it has been discovered, and this is mostly due to US behavior on the global stage, it has been discovered that the internal arms buildup has very little to do with an external arms race. The internal arms buildup, and again, focus here on the United States, since we live here, The internal arms buildup has more to do with the elite class, or the corporate class, or the capitalist class, or the luxury class trying to manage domestic exploitation by diverting the attention of the public to foreign aggression. And when they divert the public's attention to violence going on in other parts of the world, then that gives them an opportunity to consolidate power at home. Now all of this secular back and forth about the nature of war, about why nations engage in war, about power, about greed, about the confiscation of resources, None of this. After hundreds of years of theorizing about why people engage in war, about why nations go to war with each other, after all of this time and all of this effort and all of the money that has been spent into looking into why, it has not lifted the human condition all across the world up from poverty. It has not improved the human condition from having to suffer from famines. It has not affected the human condition in a way where people are not divided. In a way where people don't consistently and perpetually engage in the desire to go to war with each other. If I was to look at the top three subjects that are studied by Western Social Sciences, I would have to say that they are sex, politics, and war. And with the sheer volume of information that has been generated in the study of war, one would think that the culture is obsessed with it. That the culture is drunk with it. That the culture can't get enough out of thinking about war, out of preparing for war, out of creating the conditions for war. And it is not enough that this Western secular culture has produced all of this information about war. They actually put it into practice. And this is where it becomes real for you and me. The Kikuyu Holocaust. Has anybody ever heard of it? Did you study that in your history books? And the reason that you never heard of it is because it's never characterized as a Holocaust. Who are the Kikuyu? Who does anybody know? Does anybody care? The 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 Kikuyu are the dominant ethnic majority of the country that is now called Kenya. After World War 2, the the Kikuyu revolted against the British. The British were the ones who were colonizing that part of Africa. They revolted against the British in order to get their land back, in order to have control over their destiny and their resources. And so the British herded them into concentration camps. This notion of a concentration camp didn't start with Nazi Germany. It it is an endemic feature of those who have power, who want to oppress and who want to steal the resources and the properties and the lands of others. And so they herded over one million of these people into concentration camps, where they were tortured and physically dismembered. And let me just dis- define what dismemberment means, you know, just so that it's real in our minds. Just for the fun of it, they would just chop off arms and legs and other body parts. Sort of reminds you of slavery right here in the United States. They raped, and these are the British officers, military men, They raped the men and the women with bayonets and other objects. They created special tools to deliver pain to those body parts that are particularly susceptible to pain. I won't name what those body parts are, but you know what I'm talking about. And for those who would resist this kind of degradation, mostly the young men, they would roll them up in barbed wire and they would kick them around like footballs until they bled to death. Brothers and sisters, this is not a theory of war. This is real. This is happening in our real world. It happened not 60 years ago. And it is happening in our real world right now. And the reason that you don't hear about it is the reason that you didn't hear about that. Because it was covered up in the history books. Because it was whitewashed out of the history books. Because it was airbrushed out of your view. And to rationalize this for themselves, these people, they had to create a justifying ideology. Because obviously people were finding out about this brutality. And so they created a justifying ideology. That these colonialists were sent by God to civilize the rest of a savage and depraved world and so you have this narrative which is not only spread all around the culture but it is a narrative that is used to normalize imperialism, colonialism and the occupation of the lands of others that this is a normal activity This is the way that human beings function. Those who have more power, this is how they behave. And if you had more power than us, you would behave this way also. That's that's the narrative. And a big piece of this narrative is Hollywood. Hollywood creates the stereotypes that have ordinary people look at the other as a savage, as a wild man, as a person who can't be cultured, as a society that's predisposed to aggression. And that's still going on today. How was the war on terror prosecuted? We're not stereotypes of Muslims created as terrorists and fundamentalists and people who can't be cultured? That the only language that they understand is a bayonet up the back? That's the language that they understand? What about the Bihar Holocaust? Never heard of it? I don't blame you because it was probably never in your history books. In fact, it wasn't even called a Holocaust. That term is reserved for what happened to a certain people in World War II. That term can't be applied to any other people. It can't be applied to the mass genocide of any other people in the world who are not Europeans, who don't belong to a certain religion. But in this particular Holocaust, it happened during World War II, at the same time that that other so-called famous Holocaust happened. But if two holocausts are happening at the same time, why do you only hear about one and not the other? Is it because the other happened to people of color? People who are insignificant? People who don't matter in the world? People who don't have families? People who don't have daughters and sons and parents and aunts and uncles? People who don't have lives to live? People who don't have jobs? People who don't go to the grocery store? People who don't take their kids to the park. People who don't enjoy a Sunday afternoon. People who don't enjoy the holidays with their families. And when you're airbrushed out of history, you don't exist. Your suffering doesn't exist. Your suffering doesn't matter for anything. And so at that time, the executor of that particular holocaust in Bihar, that's the Bengali part of India. The executor of that holocaust was that person, that prime minister, about whom a film was just made. They call it The Darkest Hour. The name of the film is The Darkest Hour. And it's up for awards. Of course that film is about one Winston Churchill. He said at the time, and I want you to pay close attention to what he said. He's talking about the British. We are the chosen few. All of you will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you This is the Prime Minister Of the British Empire In the Bihar Holocaust Some 4.3 million people Were starved to death And this starvation was avoidable there was plenty of food. Even in the world today, starvation is avoidable. There's plenty of food all around. It's a question of distribution. It's a question of forcing people to raise cash crops that they can, themselves cannot consume. Cash crops that are that are grown for export. And at that time, in the 1940s, during World War II, after 200 years of exploitation and degradation, the people were forced to raise corn and wheat. Not for domestic consumption, but for export to the, to the UK and to the United States. And so the grain was sitting at the ports, ready to be exported, but the people, by threat of force, were not allowed to consume this grain. And so they starved. And did the British government care? No, of course they didn't care. Messages were sent to the Prime Minister and he said, and his response is back, I hate those Indians. I hate their religion. They breed like rabbits. And so four and a half million died, starved to death, despite the fact that food was there. Mothers had to throw their babies into wells because they didn't have enough to feed them. Families were forced to march hundreds of kilometers from one part of the country to another. And in the process, they died. A similar thing took place right here in the United States. It's called the Trail of Tears. The Native Americans mark the trail of tears every Thanksgiving right here in the United States. And in the irony of ironies, once this film on this mass, genocidal, racist dictator came out, When this latest film came out, sort of in a classic rendition of Stockholm Syndrome, and many of you may know that Stockholm Syndrome means that the kidnapped develops a love for the kidnapper. And so in a classic rendition of Stockholm Syndrome, there are people, Indians, who watch this film who, upon seeing the film, said, Hollywood rocks! How inspiring it is to see a person make such decisions in a, in a tough time of war. And it's because their own history has been whitewashed out of their minds. And in the 1940s, it was only four and a half million people. Look how I'm saying that, it was only four and a half million people, because in the eight, from the 1860s through the 1890s, in the same country, in India, over 30 million people perished because of famine, for the same reasons. And the reason that the British gave, they said that this was an instance of natural selection, the survival of the fittest, that we are better prepared to survive in this environment, we are stronger, we have more power. And so this is just a case of progressive evolution. And so why did I go into all of this detail about the theory of war? about the constant war footing that the dominant power culture is perpetually on, about why nations go to war. It was to demonstrate to all of you who are listening that insofar as the Euro-American Zionist imperialist power culture is concerned, its major occupation is war what dominates its thinking is war and so in this environment and this is the point that has to be made and this is the point that ought to germinate in our minds that in an environment where there is a constant preoccupation with war why are we Muslims afraid to talk about jihad in the way that it ought to be talked about why are we afraid to talk about jihad in a manner where we don't present it apologetically as a defensive war why are we afraid in a culture of war to talk about a just and a principled war? Why are we afraid to talk about a war that has rules? A war that is geared towards liberation and independence and freedom? We don't expect the imperialists and the Zionists to be something other than what they are. They are who they are. The question is, why are we not who we are supposed to be? War is pervasive in the world. And yet, we Muslims who have been given a just standard of war are afraid to populate Our thoughts and our ideas, Qur'anic thoughts, ideas from the sunnah. Why are we afraid to populate those thoughts and those ideas within this destructive culture of war? Isn't that our responsibility? Don't we have an obligation to bring this culture to heal? قول قولي هذا وَاسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ لِي وَلَكُمْ فَاسْتَغْفِرُوهُ يَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ فَاسْتُرْشِدُوهُ يُرْشِدْكُمْ At this point, I want to talk a little bit about the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Earlier, we had mentioned that ultimately it was a jihad that liberated the Muslim peoples of Iran from oppression, injustice and degradation, servitude to other than Allah. Now what needs to be said about this and many things need to be said about the Islamic revolution in Iran. But one of the things that needs to be said is the difference between Islamic history and Muslim history. There's nothing sacred about Muslim history. The history that started at the time started with the mission of Muhammad Wasallam, and has come with us all the way to this day. Now, on the other hand there is Islamic history which is the history of prophets. And of course there is everything sacred about the history of prophets. Now in the last 1400 or so odd years there have been times where Islamic history and Muslim history have converged. And of course the latest convergence was the Islamic revolution in Iran. That was the most recent convergence. And whenever, in this past 1400 years, Islamic history and Muslim history have converged, a sort of clarity in the world situation has emerged, or emerges. Whenever this convergence takes place, a clarity emerges. and let us look at some of the features of this clarity that emerged with the Islamic revolution in Iran 40 years ago the first of it and and once again you may not hear what I'm about to say in other places although this on this day every masjid in the Muslim world and in the non-Muslim world ought to be talking about the Islamic revolution in Iran. But nonetheless as I'm saying that every time this convergence between Islamic history and Muslim history took place a sort of clarity emerges. And the first feature of this clarity is that the Zionist project in the Holy Land now has borders. As many of you may know that when this Zionist monstrosity was thrust upon the Holy Land nearly 70 years ago, it didn't have any borders. And for the better part of its existence there was no territorial definition of Israel and I believe that today it is the only power country in the world which enjoys such a definition every other country in the world except for maybe a couple of islands here or there has a territorial integrity but not the state of Israel but because of the Islamic pulse in Iran. Today, the Zionist project has borders. Its southern border is Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Its northern border is Hezbollah. And it has an eastern border that is emerging with the axis of resistance. And notice how I didn't say that the southern, northern, and eastern borders of the Zionist project are geographical positions. The southern border is an Islamic movement. Its northern border is an Islamic movement. And its emerging eastern border is an Islamic movement. The people that the culture of war considers to be insignificant, Afin. Those who don't matter. Those those whose families are not as valuable as our families. Another feature of this clarity is that the opportunists who claim to support the Palestinians Have been exposed Yes, there are a lot of opportunists That are out there They say that we support the Palestinians But at the same time They reject the forces of liberation That have tried to liberate the Palestinians They say we love the Palestinians But we can't stand Iran and Hezbollah How can you love the Palestinians And hate Iran and Hezbollah ask some of these opportunists that before Islamic Iran and Hezbollah, what was happening to the Palestinians? Weren't they being just shoved under the rug, a forgotten element of history? And now this issue is front and center. Those who colonized the Holy Land They are in a state of trepidation. They know that their existence is threatened. They view Islamic Iran as an existential threat, a threat to their existence. Does Islamic Iran have more nuclear weapons than the combination of the United States and Israel? No. Does it have more conventional weapons than the combination of Riyadh and Tel Aviv and Washington? The answer is no. Does it have more military troops on the ground than the combination of these countries? The answer is no. What are they afraid of? What is the existential threat that you're talking about? And the existential threat is so real for them that over 95% of the citizens of that Zionist project have dual citizenship with other countries they know something is up in fact in a sense they know that their time is up and the last feature of this clarity that I'm going to cover Is that the synergy of goals between the Wahhabis in in Riyadh, the Zionists in Tel Aviv, and the imperialists of Washington has been exposed. Before the Islamic revolution in Iran, they were just operating under the covers. Operating in secrecy. Only the very well informed knew in of their relationship. Now, everybody knows. In fact, it has gone to such an extent that the covert material funding for militant religious fanatics and, ext- and extremists. is part or an important part of the strategy of imperialism Zionism and when I say covert funding for militant religious fanatics you ought to be hearing al Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban whatever whatever name you want to attach to them that this covert funding for all of these groups is part and parcel an important part of the Western imperialist Zionist strategy to try to defeat the Islamic resurgence from within in a way to try to manage it in such a way that it defeats itself from within but what most of us most of us see that this covert funding has been taking place for the past several years this is now out in the open what's not out in the open and what the Islamic revolution in Iran has exposed is that the more public aspect of this strategy are the interfaith dialogues that are taking place between Muslims and non-Muslims The public prong of this strategy to equip extremists and fanatics with arms and weapons and money and oil, the public face of that strategy are interfaith dialogues between Muslims and non-Muslims. And you might ask yourself, okay, why is this the public face? of this covert funding for ISIS and everybody else. Because it is that extremism and the violence of that extremism that justifies the public engagement with Muslims. So-called Muslims of conscience or moderate Muslims or what have you. Were it not for this covert funding of this violence, there would be no need for Muslims to engage at that level in a public fashion. And again, were it not for the Islamic revolution in Iran, none of this information would be making its way into the public. And finally, of course, there is the coming intervention, military intervention in Venezuela. Now we have to recognize as Muslims that over the past 12 or so years Venezuela was one of the few countries in the world that sort of broke out of broke out of the uh, of the sort of secular capitalist, materialist orbit. And one of the reasons that it broke out of that orbit is because the founder of the Islamic revolution, Imam Khomeini, was a champion of the oppressed. And he did not allow himself to be deceived by the ideologies of the East or the ideologies of the West and in fact he said that he was going to take a different course an independent course a course to uplift the oppressed and this message reached the people of Venezuela in fact it reached them to such a level that the poor and the downtrodden of that society elevated. To the top position in that society, a person of the people. And that person of the people had a very positive relationship with not only the Islamic State in Iran, but also those that the Islamic State had a positive relationship with, in particular the Palestinians. And so now we have an administration right here in Washington and it's backed up by its Zionists in Tel Aviv that are trying to reshape the map of Central and South America. And again, the reason, and you don't have to look very far, we already know that Venezuela is rich in oil and gas. But what a lot of other people don't know Is that it is also rich in gold And other minerals And so those who don't want to pay a fair price In sort of a more or less free trade type of agreement Where you exchange based on principle When you have people who don't want to engage in that way who just want to go down there and take because they have the power. They're saying, in the same way that you heard about the, about the majority Muslim part of the world, that there is a dictator ruling over there, that he was not elected democratically. He is taking advantage of his people. He is corrupt. And then you see a whole litany of things that are normally applied to Muslims, that are now being applied to the friends of Muslims. This is the influence, the 40 year influence of the Islamic revolution in Iran. This is not something that we ought to minimize we ought to view it in the way that it ought to be viewed As one of the seminal events In that last 100 years Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa at-tiba'ah Wa arina al-baatila batilan warazukna ajtinaabah Allahumma aghfir lil Mu'minina wal muminat Wal-muslimina wal-muslimat Al-ahyai minhum wal-amwat إنك قريب سميع مجيب ودعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وحبلنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما Allahumma salli ala muhammad wa ala ali muhammad Kama sallayta ala ibrahim wa ala ali ibrahim Inna hamidun majeed Allahumma barik ala muhammad wa ala ali muhammad Kama barakta ala ibrahim wa ala ali ibrahim Innaka hamidun majeed Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Wal asr innal insana lafi khusr إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والاحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله اكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون واقم الصلاه الله اكبر الله اكبر لا اله الا الله